Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is the journalist and author Sarah Sands. Sarah grew up in Tunbridge Wells and cut her teeth on a local newspaper in Kent before moving to the diary on the Evening Standard. Sarah later edited the Standard, but not before spending some time at the Telegraph, redesigning the Sunday edition with the launch of two new magazines. In 2017, Sarah moved into broadcast journalism as editor of the Today programme. While at the BBC, she steered Radio 4's flagship news programme through Brexit, Covid and a general election. But after three years of early mornings, Sarah stepped away from the newsroom and wrote The Interior Silence, a book which explores the lessons to be found in monastic living as an antidote to the stresses of everyday life. And she's followed that book with The Hedgehog Diaries, a meditation on grief, healing, and the British hedgehog community in which this prickly mammal becomes a metaphor for hope. Let's find out more. Sarah Sands, your book is dedicated to your late father, Noel Harvey. So can you begin by telling me about him and the values he instilled in you growing up? Yes, I can. And it's only really when perhaps people die and you lose them that you start to really understand their effect on you. So the things that I remember about him was him being a big bird watcher, which when you're young may not always appeal. But I always think of him with a pair of binoculars. And then it's the qualities that go with it of patience and a sort of humility, actually, I think was what I took from him, not that I've inherited it. But watching him die is also something that is a way of learning about someone. And um, Was that a long time ago? 
it was two years ago and it was during a, a winter season and he was someone who so he very much loved um birds and bird watching and he loved classical music are the two things that he loved so there was a sense of being denied those because it was winter it was dark he was in a nursing home and the hedgehog, which appears in this book, was a way, apart from anything else, of finding sort of common ground that I could report back on something. Mm. And also meant we were focusing on spring. So I just said, the point was in spring, we can release the hedgehog. And I hope that we'll get you into the daylight. And what happened was that the night I brought back the hedgehog to release was also the night that he died. And so mm. it was a strange sort of release for both of them in a way. It was a full moon and a stormy night and I was thinking about the hedgehog and thinking about the outside world and thinking about the darkness and then heard these footsteps outside and this was in the early hours and I wasn't being entirely rational but I thought has someone come to get the hedgehog or something's happening and then heard footsteps coming up the stairs and you know flung open my bedroom door to whoever the intruder was and it was in fact my brother who said your phone was off dad's died. So it was during the night. So I didn't see him in that final night. But I, I did know that when I went to, to the nursing home and, and saw him and said goodbye to him then, I saw by his bedside, he'd written on these notes, this last word was compline, which was end of day, end of life. And so I took that to mean that there had been an acceptance that he knew what was happening. Mm. And he accepted it. But what a good brother you had too. Yes, I did. Mm. You studied English and drama at university. Did you have any interest in journalism at this point or did that come later? I didn't have any particular plan for anything. I married young and I had done English and drama, but I wasn't a sort of model student. I now full of regret and spend hmm. a lot of time sort of studying and reading and trying to make up for it. And Goldsmiths, where I was at London University, I have an association with them and I hadn't really thought I through... I like that idea. What does an association mean? Well, there was one thing you'll be very interested in that we're looking at, which is the prospect of some sort of refugee institute. They also have a very interesting media department. They're doing some really good future of journalism, multidisciplinary things. Uh, there's one called Forensic Architecture. I don't know if you've come across that, but it's reconstruction of what actually happened through open source, through art. So it, it's of a standard that would work for international courts and so on. So it's brilliant to see how journalism is being taken on. But it hadn't occurred to me at the time I was sort of married. My husband at the time was making films. I was having a very nice time. And it was really a film that my husband was in called The Killing Fields. There was a character in it called John Swain, Sunday Times journalist. And I think it was meeting him and realising how interesting it was to find out about people and the world. And so that took me not to be a foreign correspondent, to be a local newspaper reporter mm. on the Seven Notes Chronicle. You've been described as someone who meets adversity with an upbeat, mischievous attitude. And I've detected that already. Do you think your disposition has served you well in a competitive, occasionally ruthless industry? I think a sense of the absurd isn't a bad thing and certainly will get us through. I think what tends to happen, and I see it now being half removed from the media, though I 
take an interest in it and on the board of Channel 4 and so on. So I, I keep up with it. But I think you do always have to watch out for that solipsism that I can now hear in a way that everyone's talking about, you know, whatever you think you're interested in or whatever the Twitter row is. And, you know, I promise you they probably aren't. <laughs> <laughs> so a sense of perspective. And also, I guess that although I've got into a lot of trouble going for the sort of prank or the gag, you know, upsetting key figures sort of in my time, I think that in the end, it's all the same, the ups and downs. So actually, when I got fired from the Telegraph, I could also see, you know, it was a good story. <laughs> so I kind of think you have to accept that too. I can't um, leave it there, though. Why were you sacked? Well, looking back, I did go a bit to, to Mary Queen of Scots, not really listening to advice from people. Of course, it's very easy to do because it's a very imperious job. It is. Being an editor, I mean, you are it. You are it. And it was up to you to make decisions. And I think what I was asked to do for a paper designed for perhaps gentlemen of a certain age to attract young women, it's the same old media story. I can see key mistakes, you know, not paying attention to some key people. So I have learned since about evolution better than revolution. Mm. But I had some very good people writing. I'm, you know, Robert Harrison, Neil Ferguson and Stephanie Flanders. There was some good stuff, which I'm pretty proud of. Um, in 2017, you got a very big job indeed as editor of Today, the flagship news programme of BBC Radio 4. Did this appointment give you any sleepless nights as you started getting unsolicited advice about not changing things? It's a rather interesting job to go on to from where you'd been before. Yes, and it's a wonderful program, wonderful institution. You, there it are is, sleepless nights, is. but um, that's mostly because you don't sleep. So mm -hmm. I was aware that it really mattered, and it mattered to me, this institution. And I think there was a sense, perhaps because I came from outside... That there what was, does she know about radio? Yes, which in some ways is perfectly true, you know. But, but it's I, also um, rather necessary. It's, you don't it, want an editor who actually comes in with preconceived ideas. Of well, this, that's that, the, the other. thing that you can see it perhaps as a listener, which yes. actually is yeah. quite important. And now, of course, I keep up with John Humphreys, and we're both very much listeners now. You know, we're the people that they dread having uh, views on things. But I think my guiding principle actually was it was a conversation with David Blunkett, who had said that he'd always listened to at the time, it would have been called something else, the home service, but then, you know, Radio 4 as mm. a form of education. And, and I for always, him, it must have been incredibly important. Incredibly important. I mean, important. it must have informed his life because he was blind. Mm. And that's what I was thinking of. So is everything worthy of that? And so perhaps because of coming to a wonder about education late, I took a rather stern Rethian view that you had to learn something. And still the programme I really love is In Our Time that I listen mm. to because I think, all right, I'm going to sit down and learn something. So that was really what I was following on the Today programme. I mean, were you at home getting up or were you in the building as the programme went out? I was in the building as the programme went out. So actually, that was one thing that I never quite mastered time management. So you're in at the <laughs> beginning. You're listening after Newsnight. And at one point, my phone got hooked up for some reason to the... Um, taxi ordering system on the news yeah. <laughs> whenever someone needed a taxi it would ping on my phone it really was just going all night so I wasn't really sleeping much and I did perhaps um as a reaction to it when I left the first thing I did was go and write a book about monasteries <laughs> it's just nice to have silence at the mm. end of all that but it was a terrific program terrific team 
the other thing is, I remember getting sort of offended at one point when someone had particularly disliked whatever it was that we were doing. And then a radio critic said, it's not your programme. And I thought, no, she's absolutely right. Although, you know, I may have this role as editor for this time, it's it's much bigger than that. It is mm. the listeners' programme. So you come in as a guardian for a certain mm. time and you and you move on. But it's a wonderful, wonderful job, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. I think to be in the driving seat in a programme, either in radio, television, or indeed newspaper. Mm-hmm. It, it is a joyous experience. Yes, it is. Uh, with it is heavy responsibility. Yes. And I think probably on that thing about sort of power and responsibility, you feel the power probably more in newspapers and the responsibility more uh, doing something like the Today programme. But I think in your case, it was particularly interesting because your time on Today coincided with a fractious political time following the EU referendum. How did you find the scrutiny? I mean, did the job come with daily accusations of bias from both sides or was it laden one way? No, it was from both sides. And there were things that had sort of unintentional consequences. One thing I thought is, firstly, it would be nice to get out of the studio and get around the country. Secondly, knowing that we wanted to attract more young listeners. So I thought, well, let's go to universities and colleges rather than just going blanket on on the search. And then the government of the day complained that just by its nature of being with young people and being in higher education, there would be a bias. And Mm -hmm. so there were complaints about that. So there would be a and at least an hour after the programme, and actually in real time too, while you were editing it, just these furious texts from (laughs) politicians. You can't let them say that and so on and so on and so on. And you just have to not ignore it because it's always worth listening to, but remember the game, as it were, and that your job is to think about, is this fair and is this accurate and is it good? Charles Moore, who you worked alongside on The Telegraph, has said you're more interested in the story than ideology. And though you're switched on to politics, you're not very political. Would you agree with that assessment? Yes, I think that's a nice way of putting it. And I hope mm. I would hope so. Actually, the person I was very fond of and took a lot of guidance from the Telegraph was Bill Deeds, who mm. was strangely not that political either, in that he would withdraw if it, you know, things got mm. sticky. But also he always took a a broader view. It's this idea that you can get so pulled into arguments that really the general population, it's it's mm. passing by. So I always liked his rather mild and benign um, type of politics, I think. Mm. Um, mm. And actually, sometimes people are accused of politics when it isn't the case. I was always very interested with John Humphreys, the obsession that he was pro-Brexit. And I thought, why is it, as it turned out, He voted Remain. But I thought, why do people think that? And I realised it was because, in the end, he genuinely supported those without power. Hmm. And what he saw was a lot of very powerful people on, on the Remain side because they were leaders. And to see his sort of indignation when he felt that those without power were being sort of patronised or put aside... And he's still, you know, the thing I he reacts against is any sense of sort of de ho en bas, you know. Political views and editorial responsibility is a really interesting mm. tussle. Um, number 10 refused to put up any ministers to appear on the Today programme after the 2019 election. Do you think that this was more the arrogance of a majority government or something a little more concerning and 
undemocratic. Well, it was certainly undemocratic and counterproductive. What happened was that they yeah, kept got the stonking majority. I was, you know, on the phone at four o'clock or whatever, saying, presumably we'll have the prime minister. You know, it was a great result for you. And then told, uh, no, you won't have the prime minister, you won't have anyone. And so it was from that moment, war declared. And what they'd asked for was some sort of apology. So that was a pretty wow. arrogant thing. So I said, no, you know, no, obviously. <laughs> so, you know, gathered the troops. And it is, it's hard under that pressure because apart from anything else, you know, the presenters want big politicians. That's what the Today programme is. That's your 810. So I said, well, we're just going to have to find some people who aren't politicians. Mm. <laughs> so what we went for was suddenly scientists and thinkers. And because then COVID hit, this became exactly who you wanted to hear from. And actually, it changed the nature of the programme because the old sparring traditional form changed because you're you're talking to people who can genuinely tell you something that you don't know. It's not that you always have to end with some sort of victory. And those people became very popular with the listeners too because they loved it because mm. suddenly you weren't having interruptions and so on. So it was a rather golden period. And we had ex-ministers who, again, were sort of free to talk. So mm. some of the what had made the programme get boring, actually, which was that you you kind of knew that it was a sparring contest and therefore what the questions would be and they knew what the questions would be and so on. It became a proper exchange and conversation. And so ratings went up. Mm. So this, in the end, rather freaked the ministers who said you know, they'd like to come back on because they realised that they were being sort of pushed out of the national conversation. So I thought that was a sort of rather wonderful corrective. Did you ever have to be restrained? Were you always rather sane? Well, at the Today programme, I think I'd learnt by then um, <laughs> that probably that's not the place to experiment. And in fact, the first thing I did was to have lunch with Richard Eyre, the very nice theatre director, who was, I think, at, at the time on the board, perhaps, of, of hmm. um, the BBC. And he said, oh, you know, what are you thinking of? And I said, I'm just thinking, you know, thought for the day. doesn't really work, does it? I wonder if we just did it somewhere else or kind of gave it to Newsnight or something. And he just kind of went white and he went, ah. please. Do not go in trying to change thought for the day. There'll be questions in Parliament. You'll last five minutes and so on. And of course, I was always interested in thought for the day because I did think it was a chance to talk about something else. It's just that it didn't work in that form. It's an institution. Yes. It's an institution not necessarily just for the prayerful or even for the heathen, but for the shaver. No, I'm all for even the sea shanties and so on that, that uh, there was a huge row about whether they dropped those or not. Now I understand because I kind of think sea shanties, well, you know, let's go back to the what matters to the British people. What do you mean by the sea shanties? It was before I joined, but there was a big row because they used to have sea shanties of some kind before the programme. So I think a previous editor had thought, what on earth are we doing with these? So I just think do not touch national history and memory if you don't I'd have completely to. completely forgotten them. <laughs> <laughs> After leaving today, you uh, wrote about the lessons we can take from monastic living. Were you craving something antithetical to life on a daily news programme? Did you need to go to a monastery to sort yourself out? <laughs> well, the, the idea of the monastery, actually, it was reading Patrick Lee Firm, a short oh. book on going to monasteries, and someone who was a far greater writer, but was a social creature and an adventurer and so on, but saw that there was that missing thing. And I guess what happened, it was really during COVID when I was editing from Norfolk, where I live, and I do have this little fragment in the field of a monastery. Everyone does in Norfolk. You can't, like, avoid the monasteries. And uh, 
on you know one hand the are we asking the right question you know ask again who's on next and so on and then watching a barn owl fly past and the contrast was so was so great and i did find that in that media world where any silence means basically something's gone wrong certainly on the today program um the beauty of actually having time to think and read that was the main thing i stopped being able to read books because i was just looking at my phone all the time and to be able to stop and now i read a lot you think differently you behave differently some of those you know, great rows that that blow up in the media now just pass you by, and it is to do with a different sort of reading. I was very lucky because in my journalistic time, um, my father was a bishop up yes. in the North Riding of Yorkshire, and there were endless abbeys and yes. places, and a lovely place, Reaver, 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 yes, absolutely Whitby. wonderful. And um, I did find a solace. In yes, it, but I'm not sure that I was dependent upon them. No. Were you dependent upon them? No, 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 no. It was just, and I, I wouldn't claim any, you know, spiritual authority no, no, at all. It was no. simply that it peace. was, um, you, you do get a kind of peace. Yeah. Mm. Did you incorporate meditation in your daily routine after researching this book? No, I didn't, though I appreciate those that can. And I do also see um, one or two of the monks that I spoke to who, of course, had never listened to the Today program because that was their time. <laughs> prayerful that they, time. Imagine, that's their prayerful time. And I do understand people talking about rhythms of the day a bit now, sort of post-COVID, I think people sorting themselves out that maybe they want news later in the day. I find well tonight now, I, you know, it's probably my favourite. So I think there's something about a little bit of time, that, that going in first thing, you know, all geared up, that that. There is some time that people need. I tend to just walk or I'm trying to learn about birds now is um, what I'm trying to do, but I but, don't meditate. But in your book, it was clear that you connected with the beauty of monasteries yes. that you visited. And this love of nature shines through in your new book. Are you most yourself when you're outside in nature rather than a busy newsroom? Or do you think you can be at home in both worlds? The people who can do it, which I is um, far beyond my ability, but the Coptics have a method of being able to keep that sense of equilibrium and sort of inner silence in a busy environment. I can't do that, but I think I do. I mean, I, I spend some time in London and then the rest in Norfolk. And it's fun being in London. I go to the theatre. I enjoy all that. It's nice seeing restaurants full and people being busy and so mm. on. But I think I would absolutely need that other side. Mm. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The discovery of a distressed hedgehog in your garden coincided with your father's illness. You write that as an empty nester, you were peak demographic for hedgehog watchers. What did the timing mean that you were even more invested in Peggy's recovery? Well, there's a slight comedy in the whole hedgehog (laughs) community. I did notice that, yes, when you go to the hedgehog hospital, where some people are allowed to be foster parents to hedgehogs, some not, that I did recognise that there were, as I say, people of my age who wanted something bigger and perhaps also smaller than themselves to think about. And I did think that the whole volunteer nature, there is a sort of National Health Service for Hedgehogs Mm. run by volunteers. It is quite extraordinary. And the way that you see again that how society can work, you saw it during COVID with the neighbourliness and the volunteering. And again, it's something that you miss in the great, sort of social media rouse the small acts of kindness that people do Mm, across the mm, country. mm, And mm. I think so hedgehogs, I did notice, were part of that. And then I guess it was seeing why it is that that people are so moved by hedgehogs. But it's not just about them being cute, though they are very cute on Instagram where they're dressed up and turned over and so on. But there's also something rather mysterious and prehistoric about them and that that it is the connection with nature in that they've survived so long Mm -hmm. and that they're now in danger. Also, they're not pets. That was one of the um, rules of the hedgehog hospital, that they said no friendships allowed between humans and hedgehogs. You have a responsibility for them in the way that you do with nature, but they don't belong to you. And actually, the the two great poems, perhaps um, Ted Hughes and Philip Larkin, have done about hedgehogs, you know, are about our rather clumsy intervention in, and the harm this, this can do to this strange, rather Tolkien-style creature. You were particularly struck by hedgehog activism among the young. Mm. What do these young hedgehog officers get up to? <laughs> <laughs> well, in the same way that they care about trees and mm. other creatures, but and it's a simple thing that you can make a difference. I think that is a wonderful thing, again, that we miss in some of the strict distinctions of, of political differences. Um, so it's a simple thing. Some of the young activists have gone to developers mm. and said, when you build your houses please make sure that they're hedgehog friendly so that mm. there are just holes in the fences mm. that they hedgehog can get provision. through. Hedgehog provision. Yeah. And I think it's such a brilliantly engaged thing to do, to think, oh, we can solve this and we'll go to business rather than to government. Mm. So, yes, I'm, I'm a great admirer. In 2020, hedgehogs were put on a red alert list because they were so vulnerable to extinction. Mm. But are hedgehog populations in urban areas recovering? Yes, it's rather a good news story in urban areas. Mm. And the way that you count hedgehogs, um, sadly, is roadkill. That's how we pretty Mm. much know what's happening to them. And the other thing people tend to say about hedgehogs, if you say, I've written a book about hedgehogs, they'll say, oh, you don't see hedgehogs anymore. But in those urban areas, particularly once people are doing these hedgehog highways and Mm. making Mm. sure that there's a passage for hedgehogs, because they'll come into your garden and then they need some some escape. But I'm thinking about a sort of editorial meeting. Yes. The Daily Telegraph or whatever. Uh, and you suddenly raise the question of hedgehogs. And 
these erudite characters are sort of taking themselves very seriously. Uh, and they think, hang on a minute, whatever's got into the editor's head? <laughs> Bill Deeds would have totally understood. You know, it's hedgehogs matter. That's where you're with people outside politics and media. And so. the, the eccentricity strides beyond the editor's chair. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, very We had good. some much crazier editorial conferences, I can assure <laughs> you, than discussing hedgehogs. From all you've learned, what top tips would you give to make a garden hedgehog friendly? Well, you need some leaves and the main thing is a form of escape so mm -hmm. that the hedgehog can move from your garden to another or, or to an open field, ideally. So don't fence them in. It is a wonderful metaphor for freedom, mm -hmm. the, the hedgehog. And yet the um, temptation to... For a child to fence them in and all of it. To fence them in, yes. It's actually Mommy, don't so, let it go. No, no, no. I, I know. And yeah. then also don't concrete things over. The thing is, if we made the world hedgehog friendly, it would be good for everything else. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, so don't concrete things over. Give it a means of escape. If you do find a hedgehog that's not well, and this is what I learned, you have to act very, very quickly and rush it off to one of these volunteer places because it won't last long. I'm just scratching myself because here I am, a former presenter of Channel 4 News, questioning a former editor of the uh, <laughs> Daily Telegraph about hedgehogs. And I never thought this was something that would ever happen, but you found through hedgehogs a way to write about loss and the compassion and fortitude that can help you get through it. Can you tell me about Jane Byam Shaw? Because her story is a shining example of both. Yes. Um, Jane is a friend of mine and she and her husband have set up something which you might have seen around London called Felix. They're Felix vans, green vans, and they go around taking food from supermarkets that are left over and, and distributing it to people who, who need it. And Jane had the worst experience for a parent, which was that her son died, teenage boy, of a rare form of meningitis. And it was sudden. She had no way of coming to terms with it and no way really of recovering from it. It's, you know, there's, there's no words of comfort you can, you can possibly give. So she found in this terrible period of darkness, the one thing that she could just about manage and fasten on uh, was to talk about hedgehogs. He loved, Felix loved hedgehogs mm. and used to rescue them. And so she finally, you know, picked up a big drill and went to where she was in Oxford and said, could she drill through a wall to her neighbour? And then found it was a way of perhaps making conversation with other people and communities so that there is a oddly a kind of moral framework you can build around the hedgehog. And actually philosophers have done so. And Rowan Williams, who said that there's something about the hedgehog, it's be partly because they're so sequential, you know, that it's just, as it were, one foot in front of the other. What you do tomorrow is constrained by what you did yesterday. So it's a creature that can teach us about consequences. Mm -hmm. um, so in a way, there is a broader metaphorical resonance to hedgehogs, and that's why poets have become very attached to them. I mean, you, you were shocked at Felix's death. Mm a boy far too young. Mm. But were you surprised to find it shocking that your father was dying? It's perhaps unfair to expect ourselves to be reconciled to the loss of older family members. Yes, obviously it's a completely different thing and, and something we've all been through or, or will go through. But mm. actually to realise someone you love is dying is something that is shocking. And, and actually in Philip Larkin's poem, The Mower, 
has this line that, first of all, a, a hedgehog is mangled up in the mower, so he feels he's mauled this mm. creature from its unobtrusive world. And then talks about the the next day, you know, he got up, it didn't. And that fresh absence being the thing that most people are aware of. So it, it it's an odd thing of realising someone's not there, you know, that... Um, and so then it's how you um, how you remember them. Hmm. Um, I mean, you headed off to the Hebrides after he died. Was that a good way to fix him in your memory? It was thinking. I went to the Hebrides with some binoculars, and I think uh-huh. it was the binoculars that was the point that his relationship with the natural world. And actually, even when we scattered his ashes, it was under a tree where there had been some stone curlews. Um, uh, his favourite bird, nesting. And we lit a candle, which seemed not to go out even in the wind. And then some geese flew past in a sort of fly past. And I did think that the way to to think of him and the way perhaps that we can all try and make sense of death is through this sense of it being part of the natural world, which is what he thought. And there's a scientist in the book who says, you know, we're... We're, we're made of atoms, but then so are the stars. It's a nice way of putting it. Well, your ex-husband went missing, and then your much-loved older brother, Kit, died unexpectedly. This was all the start of this year. Did writing a book that meditates on loss help you cope with everything that followed? What happened to uh, Julian and Kit was absolutely out of the blue and after I'd, I'd written the book. But it has made me, I, I guess, think again about... Uh, loss, nature. I mean, they were both deaths that were difficult to make sense of mm. because when someone goes missing, for that period of limbo where you you can't quite mourn them or that, you know, that there isn't a body or you don't know, people don't know what to say about it. And I think for my son, whose father he was, who went to look for him in the mountain, the way he came to accept it was that the mountain claimed him in some way. Mm. You know? So I think, again, it's seeing it in that context of, of nature. And for, for Kit, in that case, it was seeing it in the context, again, of a sort of mystery, I think, is what one has mm. to come to terms with is the unknown. So with him, I've been thinking about some of the sacred music that he was very interested in and some of the sort of clues he left behind. One was that he was doing some conservation work at a lake in Ely, which he talked about and I hadn't paid much attention to, but I went to see after he died and thought, oh, I see it's a lake and it's in full view of Ely Cathedral. That's it, mm. of course. So it's spirituality and nature. And I think that that you know remains a way of us trying to make sense of some of these things. Did his love of sacred music rub off on you? So it wasn't something I thought about much before, but since then I've listened to it a lot. For my brother and my dad, music was incredibly important and my brother went on to study under John Rutter and then could have gone you know that way into his he was um a fellow chorister of Harry Christopher's and so um and John Rutter well they were at Canterbury together Mm, but um John Rutter said he was the most serious of his students and he thought would have been the person who most understood this form of music, but he chose to entertain instead. So he was in a, a cabaret called Kit and the Widow and then Kit McConnell. So his life was sort of given to entertainment, but at the end he'd had rather a hard final year or two and he'd moved basically into a vestry and 
the last thing he did was a uh, wrote an anthem for a processional cross that Rowan Williams had asked him to do. Gosh. So it did was as if it had come full circle. But he was very lucky to be drenched yes. in this music. And that must be so that's always there with always you, there. isn't it? That yes. And it's there as a comfort. Yes. An inspiration. Yes. And it is about life and death, really, it isn't it? Is. Yes. Do you miss the pace of a newsroom? I mean, do you think you'll ever return? I won't return to a newsroom. Ah. I certainly won't return. I have a nice portfolio of things. If a story breaks, if you hear something you haven't heard before, there is always that excitement in hearing news first. But I don't feel I have to, you know, tear off and stand in front of a building or tell someone what to do. So what about you? I still feel that unless I'm seeing you cycle around Westminster, <laughs> news isn't happening. Well... You never replace it. No. You can't. Uh, but your obsession with what's going yes. on does fragment a bit. Yes. But it is an interesting thing because, as you know very, very well indeed, it's a totally all-absorbing thing. Yes. I mean, if you're not totally absorbed by it, you can't do it because one thing leads to another. Yeah. And if you don't understand the things which lead to another, you can't work on it because everything is connected. Yes. I think it's unique. I think that the life you and I have lived, yours more responsibly than I, because you've actually had charge of people on a vast scale. Yeah, but you've you've actually bought us the news, so but that's been... At the same time, it's a very hard thing to leave, mm. but it's also very hard to replicate. Mm. And I don't know how one does. I think you have to... I remember when I was on the Sunday Telegraph and um, Robert Peston at the time was mm. city editor and I'd always know something would happen because the landline would ring at the time and your mobile phone. And now he would be trying you through social media. So it's that sense of when something's happened, there's a moment silence and then absolutely, you know, hitting every phone and every source. And I think, yes, one you, you certainly can't keep that up. <laughs> So what about you? What, what What's the next book about? I think it's only worth writing if it's something one's interested in. And in fact, it was, it was funny when I was on the Today programme and I was working on something and everyone assumed I was doing some sort of inside book on hmm. BBC or Today. And you know, Nick Robinson would say, you know, what, what is it? You're writing something, what is it? And he I would. Said, <laughs> and I, I said, oh, it's about the Queen of Sheba. And they went, yeah, right. No, no, it really is about the Queen of Sheba. <laughs> and I did, in fact, write a book about the Queen of Sheba uh, to go with the World Service Programme. So I think it's if something is of interest. So I think this question of sacred music and a slightly more niche interest I have in Norfolk, but on a medieval trading route called the Hanseatic League. So again, it's not going to satisfy mm. media obsessives. But I think I love that idea that what we do have now is a bit of time to learn. I love finding out a lot about things. So actually, I've just read sort of four books on requiems, you know, and I think really? that shows the difference of yeah. our different path. <laughs> yeah. And you can't stop. No, you've got to keep going. Well, Sarah Sands, thank you very, very much for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. That was the journalist and author Sarah Sands. Sarah's book is titled The Hedgehog Diaries, A Story of Faith, Hope and Bristle. And you'll find a link in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. To get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk or look for Snowcast on Facebook and Instagram. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word 
Tell your friends. Goodbye for now.